Hi, everyone. This is episode 49 of the Catholics Against Militarism podcast. My name is Ellen. In episode 48, I interviewed Father Mark Corbin, who is an Orthodox priest, and he and I got to talking, and we mentioned something about Koinonia Farm. We didn't really go into any detail, but I, I, I had said that Father McCarthy, in one of his tapes that I had heard, had told a really remarkable story about creativity that's involved with nonviolent love. And I made a mistake in that episode, and I said that that's, that he gave this, uh, he told this story in um, Behold the Lamb, which is his series of, I believe, 15 lectures that he gave at the Shrine of Knock in Ireland sometime in the 90s. I was wrong about that. The story that Father McCarthy told about that actually appears in one of his recordings called Top 10 Questions About Gospel Nonviolence. The particular talk that Father McCarthy tells the story in is in a talk called, What Would You Do If Someone Was Trying to Kill Your Wife and Kids? Which is a completely fair and common question when people are confronted with the idea of Christian nonviolence. In the midst of that talk, he does tell this story about Koinonia Farm, which is a Christian intentional community that was established in Georgia in, I believe, the 40s, long before the civil rights era. And it was integrated with blacks and whites living together and a lot of the local people did not like it. So they suffered, um, I guess what you could call persecution. I mean, they, they were intimidated, they were threatened, there was violence being used against them. And I think that Father McCarthy does a really good job in this story of telling um, how this one man who was committed to nonviolence as a Christian dealt with that. And I, and I, I hope it just gives you, um, I don't know, a different way of thinking about things in the times that we're in right now. But I thought today I would include this story about Koinonia Farm as an episode. I think it's that good of a story. I think you'll see the relationship between this and what we discussed in episode 48. So anyway, I hope you enjoy this story about Koinonia Farm. And if you like it, be sure to listen to more of Father McCarthy's uh, Behold the Lamb or more of his top 10 questions about gospel nonviolence. Both of those can be found on my playlist on my YouTube channel. They can also be found at emmanuelcharlesmccarthy.org and centerforchristiannonviolence.org. And finally, if you are interested in learning more about Koinonia Farm, you can watch the documentary, I believe it's available on YouTube, called Briars in the Cotton Patch, and um, tells the history of that farm and the story of the community. Thanks. I'll see you next time. Someone else has asked, what if someone comes into your house and is going to kill your wife and children? Should you do nothing? Should you do nothing if someone is going to do evil to you or to those that you love? This is a normal kind of question that comes consistently. The what would you do if question. There are a number of assumptions to it. And the first one we have to get over right away. And that is that Christian nonviolence means doing nothing. Jesus' whole life is active resistance against evil in the way that he believes evil in the only way that evil can be overcome by the power that he represents. He is not doing nothing. When we say that Jesus' way is doing nothing, what that means is we have reached the point in our spiritual and our human consciousness that what we're saying is, if we do not have the power of violence, we have no power. 
And that's just wrong from all that we talked about in the previous conferences. Jesus does not call the Christian to stand by and let evil run rampant across the world. That is absolutely clear. The Christian, the one who is baptized into Christ, is committed to actively confronting evil, but confronting it with the power of Christ, the power of God, the power of love, in a different way than others confront evil. And so the question, what would you do if, or what would I do if someone came in and was going to kill my wife and children and so forth, and I could kill them, or they could kill, or they would kill, what would I do? Would I kill them or not? Well, my glib answer to the question is, if someone's going to come in and kill you or your wife or children, of course, if you're a Christian, you'd do just what Jesus would do. You'd blow his head off. The answer is absurd. It doesn't even fit right. Huh? The fact of the matter is this. Isn't it interesting that when the question is asked, it's always asked in terms, well, what would I do if someone came in to kill my wife or my children? You see, people are killing other people's wives and children right now, and we don't care. Look at the misery that the people in the United States and Western Europe are prosecuting on top of the third world through their greed and their governments and their silence. Look at the misery, the children who are being killed today by policies made in Moscow and made in London and made in Washington. And no one cares about those children. So the critical thing is, what if my children, my wife, my husband, or whatever? So the first thing we got to get clear is that we're not interested in defending others. We're interested in defending what we love, an extension of self. There's nothing wrong with this, but we got to look at the context of the question. It's not as altruistic as it seems. But be that as it may, the reality of the matter is that the situation does occur in human life, the crisis situation, where the choice is violence or nonviolence. And the question becomes, what would I do if? Well, the first thing we got to realize is this. It makes no difference what I do in terms of what the gospel says. I can go out and kill. I can go out and steal and rob and rape. Makes no difference. The gospel is still the gospel. Truth is still truth. Jesus' teachings are teachings of nonviolent love, whether I execute them or not. I know that there's a way that people have of getting around the gospel by saying about the priest and minister, he doesn't practice what he preaches. But the priest is not ordained to preach what he practices. The priest is ordained to preach the gospel. The real danger is that the priest or the minister or the bishop stops preaching the gospel and starts preaching its modification 
in order to meet his or her own practice. Then we've got trouble. It takes a courageous priest or a courageous minister, a courageous bishop to say, this is the gospel, I'm not following it. Or a courageous layperson. So it's so the first thing that we want to get straight is, regardless of whether anyone follows it or not, the truth is the truth is the truth. Jesus teaches nonviolent love, and that is it. In terms of the particular situation, what would you do if someone came in and was going to kill you or your family, member of your family, and you could kill them? The question is always asked that way. What I'd like to communicate is this. That method of trying to understand how to live life is wrong. It's an illusion. It's no way to understand the teachings of Jesus to say, what if this, 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 and this? Now what would you do if you were a Christian? Why? Because in every human situation that we encounter, every single one, there are an infinite number of variables that are taking place. In any given one-minute encounter with a human being, we could write a book of 10 or 20,000 pages describing the facts that were in that situation. As we look out, we take in the whole 180 degrees, and then through habits of thought, we selectively concentrate on a few. But we're taking in everything. What we concentrate on is not what's there, it's only a piece of what's there. This is of critical importance. Because when someone says, what if someone came into your house and was going to kill your wife and they had a gun and you could reach down and grab a gun and you could kill them, they are giving you a tiny little piece of what the fact situation was. They're giving you five or ten or a hundred variables out of hundreds of millions of variables in the situation that you can act with. I say that only as reality. Casualty as a way of doing ethics is invalid, at least as a way of doing Christian ethics. For it's the setting up of an illusionary world of a minimal number of facts that are only a small number and a whole panoply of facts, and then asking what would you do with them. Facts that every instant are changing. All right. I say that just to be clear, that in order to be a Christian, one has to be a realist. Secondly, very, very important to get this straight, not only in terms of violence and nonviolence in the gospel, but for the whole life. People do not act in crisis situations, for the most part, any differently than they act day in and day out in common affairs. If day in and day out, I am becoming conscious of and responding as a creature of selective perception, living out of a spirit, huh? of revenge, retaliation, taking care of number one, being first, fear, whatever the case may be. If that's the way I live in common affairs, that's how I will live in the crisis situation when the pressure is put on. We are creatures of selective perception which we nurture. On the other hand, if day in and day out 
I have put on the mind of Christ. Abba, God is mercy. And I am constantly looking for openings to do mercy, to be kind, to be gentle, to return good for evil. Then in the crisis situation, there'll be a chance that I'll do that. For we develop what we see depending upon what our motivation is and what our habits that are built on that motivation is. For example, you find a, an exquisite soccer player and you're looking at the game. You're even looking at it from above. And you say, how did he find that opening? How did he do that? Out of this whole perception of world that he's bringing into his sight and his mind, he has developed an intense awareness, a focused awareness on how to relate to reality in order to get that ball through on the different occasions. I don't do that. You can't do that. But that's his habit of consciousness. So also the habit of greed, the habit of fear, or the habit of mercy. As one can become an artist, as an artist in terms of being a soccer baller, one can be an artist in terms of greed, and one can be an artist in terms of fear, or lust, or mercy. And so, every time we come into a human situation, there are an infinite number of variables that we are encountering. The tendency is we will act as we have acted in the past out of the spirit that we've lived in the past. We'll live that now. That we'll find those variables that will go along with our prior nurturing, whether that be in terms of greed, whether that be in terms of lust, whether that be in terms of, of, of uh, anger, whether that be in terms of mercy. We will find them and we'll use them. Let me give you, an, give you a story to illustrate what I'm saying. A true story. One of the great Christians, American Christianity in the 20th century, Baptist minister by the name of Clarence Jordan. Clarence Jordan, a southerner who had a bachelor's degree in agriculture and a doctorate degree in Greek. He developed a unique style of writing. His whole life was dedicated to Christ's teachings of nonviolent love. In the 1940s, he decided that one of the great evils in the United States was racism. The setting people apart and treating them differently exclusively on the color of their skin, he felt was utterly inconsistent with loving as Christ loved. It was diabolical. And so he knew that the time had passed when another paper was needed to be written on it or another book. And that the way Jesus confronted evil was he directly brought the power of love right up against the power of evil. And so Clarence Jordan, in the mid-1940s, went to southwest Georgia. And he set up a farm called Koinia Farm. And he immediately integrated it. White people and black people working together. Black families and white families living in houses and working on the farm. All governed under the rule of Christ and the understanding being that Christ's teachings are teachings of nonviolent love towards everybody, friend and enemy. Now in, 19, in the mid-1940s, Southwest Georgia was Nazi America. 
where race was concerned. People disappeared from the face of the earth and no one cared. Black people and their sympathizers. It was the world of that grotesque form of Christianity, the Ku Klux Klan. Probably no more grotesque than any of the major churches have been in their history, but grotesque nevertheless. And so, this is where Clarence Jordan went with the love of Christ to confront the power of evil. He didn't just pray about it, he did it. If Christ is risen and the power of Christ is there, then this is where we take it to, right where the evil is. You can imagine what happened at that point. There were burnings, there were bombings, there were beatings, huh? But the principle was always the same, huh? That one related as Christ would relate, not only to people outside the community, but to people internal to the community, husbands, wives, co-workers, and so forth. This was the life. This was the Christian life. And things went from bad to worse, as you can imagine, huh? The, church, the churches in Albany and around utterly disowned them. But somehow, the farm managed to survive. Somehow, they got enough crops out, enough food, and so forth. And so what took place was that after about seven years of eight years of this, huh, something happened that was, had never happened before. One Thursday night, I believe it was, about midnight, cars drove into the housing quarters of the farm, and they machine-gunned the housing area, just missing the killing of children and everybody, huh? Arbitrarily machine-gunned, drove away. And, of course, this created total terror, huh? Total terror. Out in the middle of nowhere, knowing that people want you dead and no one cares about you, they really wish you weren't there. Hated by the community, and now you're being machine-gunned. And so Jordan went down the next morning, the next day to the churches in Albany and various places and told them what was happening. You know what they told them? You're going to get these people killed. Unless you get the blacks out of there, you're going to get these people killed. He hasn't pulled the trigger. He's living a nonviolent life and he's going to get them killed. Nothing said about those the machine gunning. And of course he knew then and the community knew they were alone. The next Thursday night, about midnight, soon after, the same thing happened again. And now we're dealing with total terror. Because now it's clear that they're alone, that the people doing the machine gunning know they're alone, and there's no reason anyone isn't killed because it was just arbitrary spraying of houses. I believe it went on one more week and all the questions that any one of us would imagine had occurred, occurred there. Has the experiment gone far enough? Have we gone as far as we can for this time? Should we back out, save lives? All the questions that one can imagine when that sort of thing occurs. Questions motivated by honest love, questions motivated by fear. Yet everyone has to live with each other and live with the outside world as Christ would live, even under this crisis situation. And Jordan was, was just very, very serious about the fact that no, 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 we cannot move. 
This is evil, and the power of the resurrection, the power of the love of Christ, is what confronts this. He has all these people he's responsible for. So the fourth Thursday night, I believe, fourth Thursday afternoon, actually, late in the afternoon, three white men come up to the farm. They want to see Jordan. They're southerners, he's a southerner. They come up. They tell him all the things that happened the three previous Thursday nights, details that they couldn't, that couldn't possibly know unless they were there. They did it. They were part of it. And so they tell him, unless you get the blacks off of here, now the sun isn't going to come up on this place tomorrow morning. We've given you your warning. We know that no one in this community wants you here, and you know it with all the vulgarity and everything else that went toughness and meanness that went with this. And so, they told them straight up, you get the black people off here now, or the sun isn't going to rise on this place tomorrow morning. And Jordan said, boys, he said, they told me in seminary there were boys like you on the face of the earth, but I never believed it. He said, fellas, he said, they told me in seminary there were even Christian boys like you that lived. He said, I'd never, never believe it. They told me in seminary, fellas, he said, that there were boys like you that were even, he said, someday I could meet. I never believe it. Such a moment would occur that I'd be in this position, having to be with fellas like you, he said. He said, boys, he said, let me shake your hand. He said, I want to shake the hand, he said, of three fellas that can make the sun stand still. He was a southerner, they were a southerner. They were southerners. There was just a little bit of humor. He noticed a wedding ring on one of their fingers, and he said, asked him, was he married? He said, yeah, children, yeah. He said, you know what it's like when you have a baby, he said, that's up all night and you've got to go to work? Oh, geez, the guy says you, you don't feel good the next day at all. You're mad at everybody and don't feel good. And he says, you know, if that baby's up two, three nights awake, he says, you know what it is? He said, oh, yeah, it's terrible. He said, you're crazy in here. He said, trying to get some sleep, you can't sleep, you know, yeah. And he said, you know, if that goes on a long time, he said, that's not a nice life, is it? No, no, it isn't. He says, you know, any time in that kind of life, he said, that that would happen, he said, and you could get an hour of sleep, he said, you're, you're happy for an hour or two of sleep in the middle of when a baby's sick like that. Oh, of course, yes. Huh? He said, well, look, fellas, he said, we got a family here that has a little baby. The little baby, he said, doesn't seem to get better. You know, it seems to get better, and then it goes back, he said. He said, the mommy and the daddy, he said, they're up three nights in a row. Then the baby's fine for two nights. Then it's up two more nights, and then they're up two more nights, and then three nights. And it's been going on this way for months. That's a terrible situation, isn't it? He said, they got to go out and work the next day. They said, oh, that's terrible. I said, look, fellas, he said, when you come through here, he said, and you machine gun these places, he said, you wake that baby up for sure. What do you want to do that for? There was no massacre that night. There was no machine gunning that night. There was never any machine gunning again. The misery and the other difficulties didn't stop, but that did. Which one of us, out of all the variables in that situation, would have picked the little phrase, make the sun stand still, 
And out of all the millions of variables in that situation, would have picked the wedding ring on the finger and creatively worked with it to reconcile. That power comes from being faithful in little things. That comes from a 24-hour-a-day commitment to love as Christ loved, to bring Christ peace through Christ's nonviolent love into the littlest situation. And then one begins to develop the eye like the soccer player for the openings for mercy and reconciliation and peace. Which one of us, if that happened and they came up to the farm, we'd say, grab them, hold them, get the license plate number, call the police? if we wouldn't have been gone long before that in terms of the confrontation with evil and our certainty, huh? That this is what Christ called us to do, the direct confrontation of the power of love with the power of evil. But Jordan had nurtured a consciousness, mercy, compassion, nonviolent love of Jesus, and the littlest things in life. And therefore, because he nurtured it in common affairs, he had something to call on in the crisis moments. It is not that we may not have to die, we have to die. Whether we use violence or nonviolence, we may not have we, 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 we have to die. But the issue is what's the way to live? Better to live a short period of time in the way of God than to live a long period of time in the way of Satan. The fact is, this is what the Christian is called to do. Not to stand back and to do nothing in the face of evil. But to actively resist evil by bringing the power of Christ to it whether it is dealing with the children in the home, for Gandhi used to say, the home is the school for nonviolence, and the little conflicts with the children, or whether it's dealing with, dealing with the far more critical and crises kinds of things of life. But one thing is for sure. If we do not bring to the little conflict with the children and the husband and the wife and the brother and the sister at home, the Spirit of Christ, there is no possibility that we're going to bring it to the crisis situation. The choice, as Gandhi made the point, is not when war breaks out, I am nonviolent or I am a pacifist. Gandhi was quite clear. The one who becomes a pacifist at the moment when war breaks out is a fraud. He or she has been living the entire lifestyle that has created the war. And now they're going to back away from defending what they've been living off of. No. The commitment of Jesus Christ to nonviolent love is not a political tactic. It is a way of life. It is a mind style brought to every instance of life. It has power in the crisis situations, just like any other activity has power in a crisis situation, because you have nurtured it in the little things of life. Violence is the same way. One is competent in violence in the crisis situation because he or she has nurtured it in the smaller 
kinds of activities and disciplines that are necessary. So there is a choice, not about what to do in the crisis situation, that will follow. The choice is how to use the little moments of life, the little conflicts of life, how to respond to them. Whether to ask the question, what would Jesus do here? Or not ask the question and simply respond as culture says to respond. Jesus does not let and ask that we allow evil to run rampant. His whole life is dedicated to the concrete resistance of evil. But there is a choice of means that we resist evil with. 